Romans 6, please. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to jump right in this. I need the time that I have. Romans 6, I want you to say amen when you find it. Oh, you didn't find it yet. Really? You did? Okay, appreciate your tone. You don't have to talk to me like that. Romans chapter 6, and I know that on your bulletin, that's right, bulletin, duh. I know that, I know that on your bulletin it reads to verse 12, but we're going to add two verses to it. Uh, we're going to read from 1 through 14. Amen? You have it? You have it? Let us read together. Romans 6, 1 through 14, the Bible reads, uh, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, I, I, it, to me, there's a lot of meaning there. United with him in a death like his, we should certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Thank you, Jesus. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if, we have, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the inspiration I'm sure that you are going to give us, the inspiration that you've already given us from this passage. I know personally that some have moved along already. They looked at this particular passage from different angles. They've studied it. We have a hungry people here, and I'm thankful for that. Father, may you reveal, may you reveal in small, some small measure publicly here today what you've given to me in secret. And we thank you in advance for the preciousness of your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name and God's people say, Amen. Amen. You talk about a loaded passage. This one particular passage that we just finished reading. It's loaded. It's actually what many theologians refer to as deep theology. There's a lot of substance here in this particular passage, yet 
it's because of passages like this one that we as Christians have learned to appreciate the need to be intentional about our relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's because of passages just like this one. One of the main points about this passage is that we do not, if you're writing down, this is something that you may want to remember. It, it may, it's going to unfold itself throughout the message. Uh, the, and it's the, the, the fact, the idea that we do not have the liberty to live as we choose just because we have been justified by Christ Jesus. And Paul addresses this right from the door by presenting his readers with a, a series of questions. We're going to look at that in a few moments. The reality is that concerning this theme that's going to unfold in this passage is that God desires faithfulness from us. Amen, somebody. We do not have the liberty to live life the way we choose. Because God, in fact, desires faithfulness from us. And so far, from this particular series, um, from this book of Romans, we've been talking about all the wonderful things that make salvation a reality in our lives. And, and by the way, there's more of that to come um, in the book, including this message here today. But today we are also going to highlight the, the theology of sin, which is something that I've mentioned already, which includes the, the destructive power of sin. How many know that sin possesses a destructive power? And of course, we're going to be talking about the freedom that we have from sin. And Paul the Apostle, he addresses these, these, these ideas in this passage in two ways. Number one, he presents to us the principle that I've mentioned once before. The principle of being dead to sin. That we are dead to sin in principle. And secondly, that we are dead to sin in practice. We mentioned that briefly once before. Paul's goal, therefore, was to encourage the entire Christian community to truly understand how grace impacts the human soul. Did you get that? That's Paul's main thrust here in the passage. He's gonna, we're going to talk about the theology of sin and its destructive power. But he wants to present this because he wants his audience. He wanted his audience then, just as God wants his audience today, to understand the magnitude of how grace impacts the human soul. And I think that's extraordinary. I think that's extremely powerful. And we cannot afford to lose sight of that. I want you to look with me to verse 1. And as noted already, Paul begins with a few questions here. He asks the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the response, or rather this question, is generated from the previous chapter's discussion. And I think, from Paul's perspective, its, it's aim was to neutralize any erroneous thinking about the nature of the grace of God. I'm going to say that again. 
Paul's aim in asking these questions was to neutralize any erroneous thinking about the nature of the grace of God. And I want you to turn in your Bibles back to chapter 5, verse 20, because I want you to follow this context with me. I want you to understand why Paul the Apostle begins this chapter with these questions. Chapter 5, verse 20 reads, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, in other words, to expose sin, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We know that according to Paul, he wanted to set the record straight concerning the observance of the law, which is the reason why he alluded to that in, in the, that one particular verse. There were many people at that time, and just like there are many people in society today, that somehow believe that righteousness can be derived from observing some legal system. And we know that that's just not possible. The law was implemented to expose sin in our lives. It was established to, to, so that we can see ourselves the way we really are, what we are truly made of. Apart from Christ, right? You and I are sinners apart from Jesus Christ. But when we are in Christ, everything changes fundamentally. It changes in some powerful, absolute sense. But yet, there were a lot of people who were running too far with this idea of grace. And they sort of had this mindset that, okay, this justification is wonderful, it's beautiful, and indeed it is. But people were kind of taking it too far and, and, and running away with it as if it is a license to sin. Just because we're justified doesn't mean that we can do whatever it is we want to do, whenever we want to do it, as long as we want to do it. Does it mean that at all? In no way, shape, or form. So when he asks a question, and then he gives, he sort of gives us his response. Look with, look with me again to Romans 1. And then look at his response. I mean, I'm sorry, Romans 6, verse 1. And then look at his response in verse 2. He says, by no means. What, what's he saying with that? In other words, are you crazy? Grace reached in and rescued you. Now respect the gospel truth and pattern your life after it. It's what he is essentially saying to us. Now let's, let's define sin briefly in some basic way. What is, what is sin? Some say that sin is missing the mark. How many heard that definition before? Let me see your hand. Sin is missing the mark. And, and that's true. But that only refers to an unrighteous act when we define it in that manner. There's more to sin than that. So let's take it a little bit deeper. What does it mean to be called a sinner? It is defined as, I look this word up, it's defined as innate perversion. Innate perversion or iniquity or evil in disposition. And the idea is that we all possess a sinful nature, a fallen sinful nature. The reason for which God himself sort of 
took his robe off, and we get this from Philippians chapter 2, which I love so much. I think maybe after the book of Romans, we're going to look at Philippians, because I just love Philippians. And, and, and consider, I want you to use your imagination, I want you to consider the humility of Jesus Christ. Not the humbleness, the humility. I like that word because it's stronger, because it's exactly what he did. He humiliated himself. For you and I. He took upon this garment. Not, not, not my clothing, by the way. It's nice, right? What do you think? My wife bought this. No, it was a gift from one of you, I think. Anyway, he took upon this flesh, this, this form, just like you and I, right? And he did so because, it, I love Hebrews chapter 4, the last verses, where it talks about this, this opportunity that's afforded to us. As a result of what Jesus did. That we can relate. He can relate with our experience in this physical body. Because he endured the same thing yet without sin. Amen somebody. He can relate. Therefore he's, he's become our great high priest. And we can look to him. We can look to him concerning all circumstances. Concerning all matters. And we can never say, well, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm feeling. You don't know what I've been through. We can never make those declarations because he walked in this body just like you and I. And he did so so that we can be free from this thing called sin or our iniquity. So, so what about, or rather, so what Paul does next is that he introduces his thoughts about the Christian's Position in Christ as a way to encourage consecration. And I want you to think, that for, think about that for a moment. Because we talked about this sin issue, right? And it's, and it's a reality. We also know that he began this passage with a series of questions because he wanted to make sure people understood him clearly concerning statements he made in the previous chapter. He says, where, where sin abounds... Grace does much more abound. And it's not talking about, that's not an application that anybody can make. Right? It's not. It's an application that only children of God can make. But it's an application that, that, that people who have truly repented of their sins can make. So I'm not practicing sin today. No, I'm not. I am a sinner saved by grace, but I'm not practicing it. From time, to time, from time to time, I miss the mark, as we stated already. But the blood of Jesus, or rather, because of the blood of Jesus, sin is not reckoned. It's not imputed, right? It's not deposited into my account. On the contrary, grace is deposited into my heavenly account because of what Jesus did for us at the cross. But this idea is important. It's the reason why I'm circling back to it. This idea that just because we've been justified, it doesn't give us the right to live as if we have not repented. Or, or the right to live in whatever way we choose to live. As if somehow we have a license to sin. How many ever heard that phrase before? A license to sin. Nobody's heard that before? Just me? 
Really? What's up with you, Grace Brethren? Uh, my sister Caroline back there, amen. She's, she said a big amen. I heard, I heard. And it's true, a lot of people run with it as if we have a license to sin. And that's not what Paul was saying. So let's move on. <coughs> Verse 2, he asked this question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he responds, by no means. By no means. Then he goes on in the verse. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Theologians refer to this as being dead to sin in principle. It's the idea that because of God's grace and our repentance resulting in our conversion, sin is no longer imputed. We talked about that already. And it means that our bondage to sin has been broken and we... And we now, have, we now have peace with God. And that's what I've been talking about recently concerning our position in Christ. Because of our repentance and because of God's grace, right, we have this wonderful position in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, our desire should always be to honor God with our lives and not to remain engrossed in our sin. That's why he responds, or rather responded the way that he did. Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Are you crazy? Are you insane? That's not how it works. There's a responsibility that's required from you and I. And that's to live a life honorable to God. Now I want to give you an illustration. I want to be brief with it. <clears throat> And it, it, it's, it's a personal uh, illustration. I still have friends, believe it or not. I still have friends back east who are in some crazy way holding their breath and waiting for me to denounce my faith. Their, per, their perception is that faith or Christianity, what you and I love, it, that, that it's associated with a crutch that you only have faith or apply yourself to faith or the notion of religion so that you can get past a certain circumstance in your life. But once you're past it, it's okay to lay down, to put aside the religion, to put aside the emphasis, the faith, which is insane, right? You and I know it from our perspective. It's insanity. But believe it or not, I still have friends like that. When I got out of Yale, I mean, that, that uh, Yale, that other institution, right? <laughs> huh? Watch, watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. But Yale. From my perspective, I, it, I got an education, didn't I not? So it's Yale, that other college, you know? <clears throat> so, so my friends, they realize that I'm dead to sin and that my responsibility is to honor God with my life. And they can't make that connection. They feel as if religion is for some, but somehow not for everybody. Well, rather, when I say religion, you know what I understand. I'm talking about Christianity in the context of our particular faith. I'm no longer bound to the power of sin. And I've tried desperately to get... Many of my friends to truly understand that. I want to write this verse down on your notes. Put John 8.36. And it reads, If the Son sets you free, 
you shall be free indeed. And what a powerful truth. And I'm still trying to get most of my friends. You know, they're hoodlums. They're still running around on quarters. When they see me coming, okay, here comes Reverend Rick. And they scurry away because they don't want to hear the truth. They've already realized that they can't influence me with the things of old. I'm done with that. It's been 30 years. I'm done with that. But they don't want to hear truth because they don't want, as Jesus put it, step into the light. They do not want to step into the light. And so Paul gives us, moving on, Paul gives us substance to this idea by referring to the symbolism of baptism. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. And what a wonderful picture concerning our position in the Lord. I love that. He, we, we died with him. We were buried with him. And because he rose, we rose also. Amen, somebody. That's a wonderful picture. That's what baptism symbolizes, right? It's not a religious ritual that we participate in. And that somehow if we don't, we're not saved. We don't make that declaration at all. It's a symbolism. It represents when somebody stands here, when Chewy, when Chewy stood on that water a few months back, he was making a public declaration of his, pay, of his faith to the people of God in this community. He would say, I'm taking a stand for Jesus and I want you to know that I'm in Christ. That I'm, not only do I know Jesus, but that I've committed my life to follow the Lord with all of my heart, mind, soul, and soul. And I just want you to know that. That's what... That's what baptism represents. It's a public display of an internal experience. Wow, I like that. I think I'm a patent that. Look at, look at verse 5. <clears throat> no, not, not yet. I want you to back up. I, I want you to consider verse 4 again. Because look at the final words in verse 4. It says, we too may walk in newness of life. So there's a, there's a concept there in that verse, in those two verses, three and four, that Paul the Apostle presents. When he, when he gives us, when he talks about baptism as a symbol, he, he says that we are dead, that we died with him, and because he rose, we rose as well. And, and the question now is, and it's a legitimate question, now that we've risen with Christ, what's the purpose? How do we go on? Or, or, what is our intention now in the body, now that we've risen again with Jesus Christ? And the response is right there in verse 4. So that we may walk in newness of life. And this is Paul's argument. I, I know I'm not an expert at presenting this material. I know that. I got my huge flaws. Uh, but it's, it's glorious to note, nonetheless... Even if this is the only thing that I'm able to successfully present to you today. That what Paul was actually aiming to do, at least with regard to these first few verses. He wanted to make sure that people did not misunderstand grace's impact on our lives. And what our responsibilities are as a result. 
because we are saved, what is our responsibility? Verse 4 again, so that, me, so that we may walk in newness of life. Look at verse 5. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Are those meaningless words? I don't believe it whatsoever. I believe there's a reason why those words were selected. It's almost as if Paul says, if I died as he did, then it's only natural to expect a resurrection like his. And it's true. And that's the glorious beauty about the Christian faith. Right? But there's another serious inference that we can make from, those, from that particular verse. And it's about the person who claims faith in Christ but doesn't seem to invest in change. Look at verse 5 again. It reads, For if we, have been, if we have been united with Him in a death like His. In a death like His. We already talked about from Philippians that Jesus' death from the perspective of Paul to the letter of the Philippians. He humiliated Himself. He sacrificed Himself in the most ultimate way possible. That was a death like his, right? Or rather, the way that he died. Now, how should we die? Is there any significance? Yeah, the word is repentance, right? It's always been the word, right? It's always been the term of a theology concerning a decision that a person makes this side of heaven when he or she hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. We repent. What does it mean? We turn our lives around. Somebody once said, well, you just simply do a 360. And a lot of people, yeah, not quite. Because a 360 would be what? I'm moving in this direction. And I'm just simply going to continue moving in that same direction. It's the right thing to say is to do a 180 and about face. To actually turn around and begin to move in the opposite direction. It does not mean perfection overnight. That would be legalism. That's the church down the street. Right? We don't talk about that here. But there has to be a turnaround nonetheless. It's called repentance. Perfection is not required from me. From you and I. In no way, shape, or form. But a commitment is. It's called repentance. Look at that again with me. I want you to see that. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, which is what I establish it to mean, repentance. In my mind, those who truly repent experience a death like his. And therefore go on to experience a resurrection like his, which is a reference to the born again experience. Isn't it amazing how a lot of people, I, I don't know about you, but I know people like this, who made the claim of being a Christian, especially in Yale. Don't look at me like that, Miss Tracy. Who made, Amy said, what's he talking about? People who made the claim to be saved... And yet when you watch them long enough, not in a judgmental way, 
For the sake of fellowship, right? For the sake of fellowship. I need to know who I'm working with. I have to watch my back in there, quite literally. You know, make sure that my brother wasn't going to literally stab me in the back. And so if you observe carefully, if a person is truly saved, no matter how wicked the person was, you will see some fruit. Even some minuscule, some small measure of fruit. But you will see some nonetheless. But what happens when weeks and months and years go by and the individual is still involved in sins of old? Has there been any conversion whatsoever? Right? Can we make the claim that the person, just because he or she is coming around, well, he's saved. She's saved. She's coming to church. Can, can coming to church save us? No, in no way, shape, or form. And no, this is, this is simply where believers come to congregate. But it doesn't determine salvation. never has. We come to a place just like this because we are saved, not to be saved. Because we are saved. And so, if we observe carefully, we would note whether somebody truly knows Jesus or not. And Paul the Apostle, he, he, sort of, he sort of refers to that. If we died the way he did, we shall be resurrected the way he did. That's that repentance versus Born again experience. There's so many people, and I'm moving at this slower pace because I'm looking at the clock and I'm going to just leave it alone. Maybe refer to a couple more points here and that is it. But I want, you to, I want to leave you with that strongly. Because sometimes we make the mistake of believing that we know Jesus just because we are associated with a church. Or just because we are associated with a group or an organization. And I did that for a long time as a Catholic. I couldn't understand why I wasn't experiencing internally this, this thing that the Bible was talking about all the time. This newness of life. This, this amazing experience. And I didn't have it. And I realized that I just, I never repented of my sins. I never made that decision to truly come into faith, to truly accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And it's so essential. And I'm drilling this point because this is missing in society today. It's absent in our churches. We declare everybody to be saved. How many of you have ever gone to a funeral? I've gone to numerous funerals, memorials. I've done, conducted many of them back in Philadelphia. And isn't it true that the individual standing in front declares everybody to be going to heaven? And is that true? And so why do we do that? Why do we do that? And that's part of the problem. That's where we are in society today. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 13.5. And I'm going to end, end it with this. Second, I want you to turn there. Turn there. I'm not just going to read it. I was just going to read it, but if it's the last thing I'm going to present, I want you to see it. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Here's a point Paul makes. Amen? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It says, 
Still hear some pages. It says, examine yourselves to see, to see whether you are in the faith. What are the next two words? It says, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. It's a, it's a reality. And that's part of the point that Paul was making here. And I'm going to close with that. There were a lot of people who were misunderstanding his presentation of grace. On both sides of the aisle, rather. Some who wanted to still hold on to and perpetuate a, a, a legalistic notion. Because you, you could not consider yourselves to be justified or saved if you were not observing some element of the legal system. And Paul says, no, let it go. Let it go. And then some were letting it go and running off in the opposite extreme. And he's rearing them back in. He says, no, you can't do that because there's a measure of responsibility at hand for every person who considers themselves to be a child of God. It's not a responsibility to be saved. It's a responsibility because we are Saved and because we know Jesus. And he goes on in this chapter to clear that up. So that no one will live life misunderstanding that point. If you're displaying fruit, then it's because you're a child of God. In spite of the fact that from time to time you're going to slip up and you're going to do things that you're not supposed to be doing. That's the beauty of the grace of God. Romans 5.20, make it a signature verse. Because it's powerful. Put it on the bottom of your text, on the bottom of your email. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. It goes above and beyond any circumstance that you and I find ourselves in. It doesn't, the problem, it doesn't matter. The issue, the dilemma... The character defect that we have. How many are flawless here today? Anybody flawless? Oh, oh. Watch, watch yourself, sister. Uh, Brother Roy, I think you. No, no. So she, you, my sister here. She's the one who prays. need you to go around and get my sister over there and bring her up. We're going to pray for her right now. Okay, she put her hand up. She says she's flawless. Oh, flawed. Oh, how many are flawed? Okay, good. You're 90 plus, so I take that. I'll take that from you. But I won't take that from Dave Goodman. He's still a young buck. Huh? You're flawed. <laughs> Can I get the worship team to come up, please? Let us, let us worship. But think about that. There is a responsibility. And it's called sanctification. Right? There are two sides to it. There are two sides to it. The one... That Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1, which I love. It's my signature passage where in Christ we've been translated. I said that once before. We've been translated. We've been sanctified. We've been set apart from sin unto God. That's what happened at repentance, right? But there's this ongoing sanctification as well. That because I know Jesus, because you know Jesus, we have, a live, we have to live a life that is honorable to God. Amen? Stand with me.
And let us sing. Let us worship. Come on. I promise next week I'm going to get back on track. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me. (coughs) Father, thank you so much for the truth that we are able to discover in your word. We've been talking about it for weeks now. Justification and sanctification and righteousness and wisdom and redemption. Things like that. Because of what Jesus did for us. And we are so thankful. But we also know that you inspired Romans 6. Where you took the time by your Holy Spirit to introduce the instructions through Paul concerning the responsibility that we are to live out because we know Jesus. Because we know Jesus. Father, in my prayer is that we may be faithful children of God. That we, by your Holy Spirit, may be strengthened. Father, that we may be anointed by the Holy Ghost to live a life that's pleasing in your sight. That we may separate ourselves from sins of old. That we may make the necessary sacrifices, Father, to honor you with our substance, with every aspect of our lives. And we thank you. Because we can live it out in Christ Jesus. We pray your blessings on us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,
thank you for another Sunday in your presence. Thank you so much for the freedom that you give us to come into this place to worship you intentionally. I pray for my brothers and my sisters. I pray for this entire community of faith. May you bless us as we go, as we prepare to go our separate ways. I pray for those who are celebrating a birthday. I know Jennifer is. Uh, tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, may you bless her. May you be with her. There's someone else whose name has slipped from my mind. May you bless that person. And for those who are struggling physically, uh, thinking always about my sister Eileen, thinking about George and his leg, and I'm thinking about Lisa, Ron Morrow's uh, daughter. I'm thinking about Joyce, Lord God. Uh, I'm thinking about the fishers, Lord. I'm always remembering the fishers in my prayers. Uh, my sister Evelyn Atkinson. Um, and so many others, Father God, who are part of this body of believers. Who need your undivided attention. Father, please minister to our physical bodies. I pray your blessings on our finances. I pray your blessings on our jobs. I pray your blessings on our marriages, on our, on our children, on our relationships. I pray your blessings on this property, Lord God. Your anointed presence. I pray your blessings, Lord God, in that regard for, for Don Lansing who, who cares for this piece of real estate. And for Tom and, and for the many others who participate in that regard. I pray for, uh, for Blanca, the principal of TLC, the school here on, on site. I pray for Pastor Kim and, and for Pastor Ricardo, the Spanish service, the Korean service. Uh, these are individuals who share this property with us. We pray your blessings on this corner, Lord God. May you be with us always, Lord God. And now, Lord God, bless us as we leave this place. We pray this, giving you glory and honor in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.